Welcome back to the Watch More Podcast. I'm your host, Quentin Harris, joined with my co-host, Daniel Halverson, back for part two of the February Lending Update. And you know, if you just listened to the last episode, you saw where we touched on grants, we touched on second mortgage, home equity lines, how to get the best rate for your mortgage. And as I alluded to, we're back for the question we probably get I'm not even going to say 10 times a day because that would be an understatement, but pretty much all day long is what do you think rates are going to do? Where are rates going to be? And, you know, as I've talked about, if you have a forecast, just throw it out the window because 23 showed us we were all wrong. But there are some signs that are kind of, you know, maybe showing some signs of what things are going to do. And we're going to talk about that here briefly. Uh, We'll probably debate a little bit on where we think it's going to be. But, uh, you know, inflation talks and uh, people listen, man, and we get a little head fakes in the the bond market and and the stock market and the list goes on. And on, and we're gonna kind of recap all that and give you a little bit of what we think things to come. Now, reminder: next week, the new inflationary reading for PCE comes out, and this whole thing could change by the time this episode's published. But we'll go ahead and do with what we have to talk about today. So, Daniel, take it away for us here. What we got? It's like it never left. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. By the time we talk, by the time you listen to this, something probably will have happened. But, <laughs> you know, I'll preface it by saying. December rates came way down, right? They were they were pushing eight percent. November, December, they came back down comfortably into the sixes, riding high. Uh, rate lock demand was up like something like thirty percent uh, in January. So a lot of With people a six t- handle by a the lot, way. A lot of people took advantage of that. Yep. February, you know, as we record, it's the twenty first. First few weeks of February, unfortunately, haven't been very kind to interest rates. And you kind of had a double whammy um, with respect to why that is. Right. Um, but we'll, we'll start with CPI, Consumer yep. Price Index. So January, we got, uh, or excuse me, uh, mid-February, we got January's Consumer Price Index CPI reading. And uh, year-over-year year over inflation fell on the headline uh, from 34 to 3.1, but the core rate stayed the same at 3.9%. Mm-hmm. You, you might be listening to that saying, okay, well, that doesn't sound too bad, right? Big deal. Problem is that the markets were anticipating interest rate, or excuse me, inflation to be much lower. Now, when you say markets, which markets are you referring to? We are talking about uh, basically the forecast of what the the, the stock markets, yeah, bond the markets are expecting. Market. Yeah, everything so, that these everything these forecasters think are going to yeah, happen. So, so they've got their own forecast. There's a few different ones out there. They're all generally pretty close, but across the board, they thought it was going to be lower inflation than what we got. Right. Right. And you know, unfortunately, the markets trade on on uh, on headline numbers. Right. So they Boy. see something. They immediately make a reaction despite kind of what the underlying um, tone is and what the actual information detailed in the reports are. But, you know, really what you, I think what you had uh, was a very overwhelmingly negative reaction for mortgage rates, really primarily just because the markets were really, really, really hoping for that March rate cut. Sure. And uh, does that mean we're headed back to 8%? No, probably not. But basically the way I put it is, is like this. So the reason the mortgage rates went higher, pretty simple. Uh, we walked into the year and uh, the Fed said, we're going to cut rates three times in 2024. Mm-hmm. Uh, the market's priced in seven rate cuts. So <laughs> we started the year <laughs> saying, okay, we'll take your three and we'll right. raise you two and a half X, right? Right. And then uh, the Fed's passed on cutting rates in January, which was expected. They weren't expected to cut them. They also, in their January uh, meeting, said that a cut in March was probably not going to happen. And uh, as of February 1st, despite all of that, uh, the markets were still looking for six and a half rate cuts. <laughs> so not much change, right? right? And if they're passing in January and March, then the chance to cut seven times in the remainder of the year is, is 
not great. Yeah. Uh, so still expecting six and a half rate cuts. After this January in, uh, CPI inflation that came out in the middle of February, that number has been revised to four rate cuts. Mm-hmm. We're still above three, right? Right. So you've got it. Uh, really what you have is a correction to uh, an over correction of market optimism that happened. Yeah. And um, the best analogy that I could think of, of kind of when you're putting some humor in this would be, you know, if I call Quentin and I say, hey man, uh, are you free at two o'clock this afternoon for an appointment? And he says, sure. And then I said, okay, I'll see you at 10 a.m. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so the, Perfect. the markets completely jumped the gun. And, you know, unfortunately, um, as it, things kind of unfolded here from a data perspective, we kind of had to backtrack and say, okay, well, maybe we're a little ambitious with seven. We're still anticipating four rate cuts, which is more than the feds mm-hmm. have said they're going to do. If you go their dot plot, which is a survey of what all the voting members think about what when when they're going to cut rates, right? The people that have the power to do it. Um, so a little bit of a correction to probably what was too much optimism in the first place, right? Sure. I look at the markets and it's like <clears throat> Fed says, you know, three rate cuts. Markets go, I don't believe you. <laughs> you know, six and a half. Um, here's the thing, like that to me screams the markets need good news. They want good news. They are starving for good news. So to your point, the markets, I'm talking about the equity market, is building in the anticipation of better news coming. And so it takes, it's such a fragile component that it just takes something like the CPI coming in a little bit higher. It didn't even come in like, it came in a tad bit, like the, the, the lowest of the highest you could have come in. It's what it came in at markets like have the worst day that they've had all year, right? And here's why. To Daniel's point, they're building in fictitious optimism that shouldn't be there. And so this little cat and mouse game started probably back in in 1998 when the Fed chairman quit using what I would consider to be, you know, um, very cryptic talk to explain the Federal Reserve's policy and what they were going to do. And it got a little, it went from smoke signals to cryptic talk to a little bit more layman's terms. And then all of a sudden you have all these people on Wall Street that think they are Fed whispers and that they can interpret what they're saying because it's in layman's terms and they're going to price it into the market. We're going to price in all the decisions and we're going to get a run-up. And that run-up is going to give us positivity until the Fed does what they did in, in January and kind of like break that positivity. And then Powell takes the podium. He does the whole Jerome Powell show, takes the wind out of everyone's cells. And then you get these little good cop, bad cop moments where other Fed chairmans come in and they're like, well, I think we're being a little like, like gobsley. I think we're being a little too restrictive. Oh, there's a good cop coming in because sure. why Why did he do that? Well, because the markets were falling apart yep. and they're going, hey, listen, there's no reason to fall apart. We've already told you what we were doing, but that's how fragile this optimism is. And it, it's kind of, it's not humorous, but that's where we are right now. You got everyone trying to outpace the Fed or be that, uh, they're looking for that fresh wind of good news to really accelerate the markets. And, and that's because- that's because these markets are propped up on some false pretenses. That's all that is. Well, you got to keep in mind too that the the people that are moving the markets, the big investors, sure. If if they're right and they're early, their clients benefit. The Absolutely. more money they make, their clients, the more money they make. So right. there's a benefit to them of saying, okay, well, I'm going to try to predict what the market's going to do, and then I'm going to try to ride that wave up before it happens. Right. Right. Um, and how great is it if you're the person that predicted it? 
right? Right. I mean, you're now that person mm-hmm. and you're now that you're now the quote unquote fed whisperer expert. People are going to flock to you for that, right? And so that's something that it, whether you just were guessing or throwing darts or whatever, it, you're that person, at least for the next six weeks. So, you know, there's a couple other things here with with this, the inflation that I want to talk about. Sure. And you know, one of them is um, when you look at the January inflation data, um, there's a thought that you could be looking at something called uh, residual seasonality. Uh, what that basically means uh, at the, the most basic level, uh, and I'm not an economist, if you wanted to get somebody to explain this uh, in more detail, probably want to get somebody smarter than me. But you essentially, um, inflation via the data that the Federal Reserve has with both CPI and personal consumption expenditures, inflation is higher at the beginning of the year than it is the back half of the year. And just like uh, a lot of the reports that come out, there are seasonal adjustments to inflation data. And the reason that they want to have seasonal adjustments is they want to make the curve of inflation or jobs or whatever they're trying to measure, want to try to make the curve as flat as possible. Sure. Because if you look at the data for inflation, there's there's times of year where certain components, inflation is probably higher than others. Put these seasonal adjustments in and kind of smooth that out so that the numbers don't look like it's bouncing all over the place. But uh, residual seasonality basically just means, hey, the January CPI data, um, the takeaway there rather is it, it could just be that we've got some some of the residual seasonality there. And as we move throughout the year, inflation will be lower because that's historically more times than not what happens. Mm-hmm. So may not necessarily be something that that is tremendously of concern. But the other component that works in our favor, which next week we get the personal consumption expenditures reading, and uh, that for the last uh, little over a year and a half now, that data has been better, meaning lower inflation than CPI data. A lot of that is because shelter as a percentage of the total weighted index is a lower percentage. So there's less of a weighting on shelter than there are other components. But once again, the feds, when they're looking at 2% inflation and they're looking for um, validation that inflation is indeed going the right direction. They're looking at PCE. So next week, good PCE could course correct a little bit, although I would still argue that the markets move more on CPI than PCE, despite what the Fed say. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you know, and something interesting here. So <clears throat> I think it was, what was the term you using? Residual uh, seasonality. seasonality. So if I had to take my my take at that, here's what I think it, that that means. So seasonality on this CPI that just came in. And again, guys, the Federal Reserve doesn't look at the CPI. They tell us they don't. They look at the PCE, but the markets look at the CPI, which is confusing in itself. But, uh, and there's a reason why, and there's also a reason why it doesn't make sense. But here's some, here's some seasonality. What do people do during the month of December and late November? What do they do? Spend money. Yeah, but what, do they stay home or do they travel? They travel. Yeah. They, travel they travel, right? More. So they travel. They go to visit family. They don't always stay with family. Sometimes they stay in a hotel. Sometimes they rent an Airbnb. Sometimes they say, you know what? Screw family. I'm going to go do my own vacation and get away from family. But these things happen, right? That is measured in the form of lodging away from home. And that shelter cost, that is lodging away from home. That was the Grim Reaper that messed up the shelter cost, which messed up and boosted the CPI. You mean to tell me no one saw that coming? No one thought people were going to travel? Well, I think what they're saying is we did, but we didn't think they would travel that much. And there was a lot of traveling that took place. And that boosted shelter, which accounts for 44% of the CPI, 44%. And if that number's off, that swings pretty much half of the CPI the wrong direction. And that's what happened here. Now, to Daniel's point, that only makes up 32% of the PCE. So we already know that it's going to come in a little higher than anticipated. It only makes up 32%. So the idea is that it's not going to swing it as much on that side. 
I'm of the school that the PC is going to come in at what it's supposed to come in at. It might even come in lower. That's my school of, of, of thought here. The other thing is the Federal Reserve has said the following things because, you know, I'm making the bold prediction. I think they, I think they actually go backwards. I think they actually pull a quarter back. I'm one of like maybe eight people that believe that. But here's why I believe that. And I'm, I could be wrong. The odds are I will be wrong. But if you do what the Federal Reserve says, and Powell himself has said, we look at PC in three different forms, the core, and then we look at a three-month reading, and then we amortize that or extrapolate that over 12 months, and then we look at the six months, and we extrapolate that over 12 months. Well, here's the thing. We know they have a target rate of two. If you do the three months, that's like 1.8 already. It's 1.8. That's below two. If you do the six months, it's like 2.2. Well, that's got a two handle. Hell, the core itself has a two handle on it. They've achieved what they're trying to achieve. So now the question becomes, are we too restrictive? Are we doing, because guys, you got to understand, if they continued at this rate, they actually can do more harm than good if they continue to hold the line here. It actually starts to create a bigger problem than what their deflation starts to become the problem. And that actually could happen. And so there's, there's, there's a school of thought there. I actually think they pull back maybe even an eighth. You don't have to be a quarter. They could pull back a little here and it could be a, it, it could be enough headwind to give that, that boost that we were just describing the market's need to, to clamor onto, to be like, we got it. Here we go. So I would be surprised if to your point, it's three, maybe this is the start, pause, 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 and another one. And then that's how that works. Um, but I do think that's coming. And I, the reason being is I think the CPI to your point's a head fake because that is a, that, that to me, they're not going to look at that. I just don't, especially with a good C, uh, PCE coming in. Just my thoughts. Well, the flip side of the coin here is they're also very closely monitoring the labor market, mm -hmm. and um, no, not the darn labor. You market. know, we we'll touch on <laughs> we'll touch on it briefly. So no, go for it. So the ADP report, which is private payrolls, right? They are the largest payroll provider in the country. So I would argue they have the best data. Sure. Um, basically, the job report for January came in with 107,000 job creations, well below 150,000. So it was about two thirds of what was expected. So you mean to tell me the private market where we don't count government jobs, it came in less than expected? Correct. Okay, just make sure. Which has been the general consensus on the ADP report for a while now. Correct. Uh, on, the, on the Bureau of Labor Statistics, which includes government jobs, the headline number was 353,000 jobs, almost double the 180,000 expected. We talked about this last time. I'm going to sound like I'm having the same, we're recording the same episode again, but the reality is that the actual raw job number was negative. Correct. Meaning that jobs were not created, yeah. but thanks to seasonal adjustments, that number was revised from a negative to a positive 353,000. Can our marketing team literally clip that reel right there? I need that to be heard because I'm battling all these people online. They're like, oh, but the job reports are so good and unemployment's so low. Guys, get this around your thought process. It was a negative raw number. It's a shell game. I mean, the last eight months have been revised negatively down. If you keep giving me a positive number, but then you revise it 30 days later, dude, that's like getting an A on a paper so you can take it home and show mom and dad, I aced this exam. But then it's being revised next month to a D, but they don't know about it, right? right. And mom and dad are like, man, he's so good or she's so good at school, they got an A. 30 days later, got a D. It's the most ridiculous thing I've ever heard. And that's what's happening here. So I just, I want our audience, I want the people on social media to understand. And by the way, we are not attacking an administration. We're not attacking, you know, one side versus the other. We're stating facts. That's all this is. The report is wrong. Yo, thank you so much for choosing us today. We're definitely not done with our podcast, but we are going to take a really short sponsor break and then we'll get right back to the show. 
I've been in the lending business for 20 years. I've seen many different lenders. During those 20 years, I recognized there's a difference between being an originator and an advisor. The team at Bank of England is full of advisors. They take their time to understand your needs. They take the time to structure a mortgage for you and your family. And I cannot recommend them enough. If you're in the market to purchase a home, maybe it's a second home, maybe it's an investment property, or you're looking to refinance your current property that you live in, take a minute to work with the advisors at Bank of England Mortgage. They're a nationwide lender and you can find your local branch at boemortgage.com because it's more than loans, it's people. Thanks so much for letting us give a shout out to our sponsor. All right, now back to the podcast. I think that any logical person could say there's, there is weakness in the labor market. That's not to say we have a weak labor market, but there's weakness in it. You look at uh, the average hours worked um, basically since last time, since since this time last year, the entire labor force is working 30 minutes less per week. Right. You might listen to that and say, okay, who cares? That's the equivalent of losing 2.4 million jobs. That adds up. It's a big number when you take it, it extra- extrapolate it across the entire working yeah. population of the United States. So what do, what do uh, companies do before they lay off their workers? They reduce the amount of hours. Reduce their hours, right? And if you work in a place, they haven't used the word RIF yet, reduction in workforce, it's coming. If you work at one that hasn't done it yet, you're one of the few. Most people know exactly run when they hear that. Run, not riff, run, because they do not want to be a part of that. But that's the reality of what's going on. Telling me that we have a strong labor market, telling me that the economy is good. These are things that are not adding. I don't, these numbers, these numbers that they're publishing versus what the reality is, they're two different things. And we all know somebody, multiple people that have lost their jobs over the course of the last eight months. They may not have filed unemployment yet, but they've lost their jobs. Well, we're trading full-time jobs for part-time jobs. We are tra- if you lose you. a full-time job, you get a part-time job, you're not unemployed. That's exactly right. So that's the other component here that's a little bit misleading. Is if and in I, some cases, you got multiple part-time jobs. Correct. We have more of that in history correct. than ever before. So somebody that rushes back to the labor force to be a working member of society, they don't get unemployment, they don't show up in these jobless claims, they don't show up in some of this, but they may not be gainfully employed to the extent that they would like to be. Well, and the tech sector is one of the largest layoffs sectors in all the job industry sectors right now. And we all know those are, I mean, we can document where those are coming with significant severance packages. So until that severance package runs out, you can't go file for unemployment or you don't get the severance. I read that on chat GPT. (laughs) (laughs) Then I mean, in all reality, we know that, right? We've seen the layoffs. We know that they're getting severance packages. You can't get to the unemployment line until that runs out. So then it behoves the question of, are they searching for a job or are they just riding out the severance package and saying, I'll go file unemployment? That's yet to be determined. But I wouldn't be surprised if those numbers in the unemployment line do go up. And I I mean, I can't tell you when. I would hope they don't, but I got envision they might over the next ninety days. Yeah, I think both of us hope, both of us hope best case scenario here is that the Fed's uh, curb inflation they start to reduce rates before they push the economy into a recession. That would be nice, i.e., a soft landing. We've right. talked about that. Well, that's what we hope for. We we want the good economy. Right, more people that are employed. The better place, the, the better place this is for everybody. Right, right. exactly. So, exactly. And let's be clear. Let's be clear. The only way this isn't a soft landing is if those unemployment numbers skyrocket. And if they stay in restrictive territory for too long, the Federal Reserve. They do these two things. If the Federal Reserve stays restrictive, meaning they don't lower the Fed funds rate, restrictive mean tightening of the credit cycle, and these unemployment numbers start to peak, right? The jobless claims are going to be the first sign we see. They start creeping up near that 300,000 range. We we could have that recession. We could have the R word coming here. Correct. And kind of put a little bit of a bow on this. You know, I think that my personal consensus here is that we're going to be stuck in this range that we've been sitting in for rates somewhere between high sixes and low sevens 
maybe mid sevens, depending on exactly how things go. Yeah. But we're going to be in that rate range until we see a rate cut. Mm-hmm. That, that's, that is where it's going to be. The market's not going to have any more optimism than they have unless we start seeing rate cuts. And I don't think that the data on inflation or jobs is going to get so good, meaning higher inflation and better jobs, right. that we're going to see rates go considerably higher. So right. we're going to live in this range. Um, the good news is, and we've included this slide in here, don't know if we've talked about it yet, maybe you not have, yet. but uh, there is some data that shows that interest rates, mortgage rates pull back in election years, mm-hmm. meaning they come down. Um, that's tracked. That data is you know, something that we'll provide here in the show notes, but uh, that is some good news, right? The right. feds say they act independently. There's no, they don't feel any political pressure, right? But you can't tell me as we move into the summer, don't get me started. election year, you can't tell me that the uh, propensity to uh, cut rates is not going to be greater than it is right now. Yeah. I mean, you look at this chart here and it's in our show notes. It's also on the YouTube channel notes at What's Your One More. So we go all the way back to 2000, I believe six on this chart, and we go all the way oh, wait, yep. to, to current. And what we wanted to illustrate here was the sales that took place during um, during the election cycles. And what we're going to show you here is that you'll see there is a significant dip that takes place each election year dating back to 2008, 12, 16, 20. There's a dip that happens in about that late September, October, early November. And I mean... And it is not just a little dip. I mean, it's not like a ditch. It is a huge dip there. And then there's this massive rebound. It's like, okay, uncertainty. Ah, oh, now we can now we've digested it. Let's go ramp up. And and rates are kind of correlating with that. And to Daniel's point, leading up to that election, you see this dip in rates that happen and the transactions continue to go up post that election. Um and it's not, I mean, this is literally looks like an EKG during the election, post-election. So, and then it's, you know, right, it's just an upward trend before that. Um, but, you know, kind of going back to 2008, you know, rates, different time, um, different moment with home equity positions. Um, but 2016, that was a different kind of election, right? That was that was a lot of turmoil, a lot of hostility. That was one of the bigger dips that we saw until 2020. We saw another one. Um, but I'll say this, I remember working and I remember people calling and canceling contracts in October going, I just, I, I'm just so, I don't know what's going to happen. And I'm like, well, you're under contract. And like, yeah, but I'm just going to back out. I'll forfeit my earnest money. I want out. That's how like distraught they were over the election. I, do I blame the media for some of that? Yeah, a lot. Right. But driving that fear home, um, create all this uncertainty. You kind of anticipate even during 2020, it's probably going to, it could happen again coming into 24 here. I mean, we're just getting started with this, right? And uh, it's something that, you know, I would say, as I'm talking to people that are in the business, whether you're a loan officer or a real estate agent, I would prep for that. I would say, hey, listen, you know, you're going to go all in and crush it all the way through October, excuse me, through August, early September. But don't be surprised if some people start pulling back and don't freak out, by the way, because that's, that's normal. Yeah, I think at the end of the day, we're we're hoping for some May June rate cuts. We'll uh, we'll run that right into uh, some election year pullback, and we'll just have an endless summer. You know, <laughs> let me ask you this: it's, you mean a, a, definitely not a cruel summer? But let me ask you this: <laughs> we've had why, a couple of those. Already. Yeah, we've had enough of that. Why why do you think as an election year, besides the trajectory and, and the graph and the data, why do rates pull back? And this isn't a setup question. I'm just asking. I'll give my two cents too. Why why does the Federal Reserve tend to do reduction? Why do they tend to bring rates down during the election year? I mean, my, my immediate reaction is you've got the incumbent party sure. vying for office, and the lower the rates are, the more stimulated the economy could be. Makes sure. the economic picture look better, right? So that's the immediate thing that comes to mind there. 
Um, I don't know if you have other thoughts on well, it. Well, it's, po- it's a great podium platform. You don't want to go to the podium and be like, yeah, you know, we have some of the worst rates we've had in 20 years and, you know, we're in a restrictive policy and inflation is still not cooperating. You want to go to the podium and say, hey, you've seen our job reports. They're awesome. <laughs> now interest rates are great. Check. And uh, housing's moving right along. Check. It's one of the largest sectors of the GDP. It's looking great. And, um, you know, we're, uh, we're we're doing great as an economy. That's, Vote for me. That's what you want to say. You don't want to get up there and someone point the finger and be like, hey, highest interest rates. But to your point, interestingly enough, who put Powell at, you know, they're appointed, right? So who appointed Powell as the Fed chairman? You remember? Trump. Trump, right? And he was, you know, stayed there through the Biden administration. Who's the most critical of the two candidates of Powell right now? Probably Trump. Oh, it's absolutely Trump. (laughs) To the point, Trump said, I would fire him the minute I get back in there. Now, you know, I don't think he can fire him, but he can definitely appoint someone else in there. Because remember, they're politically independent, right? So if I'm Jerome Powell, and I know what one person has said about me. Do I really want to do anything that would give him a bigger platform? That's fair. Yeah. No, of course not, right? So you can kind of see how the politics may play their role into this, even though on Jerome's 60-minute episode, they're completely political independent, which I will content and say that is not the case. In theory. In theory. Yeah, it's in theory. <laughs> but the fact that I still say Jerome Powell hasn't gone in front of Congress and said, you need to quit spending money in a deficit because you're actually undermining all the policy we're trying to do. He won't say it, even though he should. And when he's asked about the debt, it's really none of my business. And then as they press him, he goes, oh yeah, it's a big problem. So, you know, it, it's interesting. It is definitely not politically independent. But with that being said, that might be a good thing for us here going into the second, third, and potential fourth quarter. So as much as I don't like it, it may play to our audience's benefit to get lower rates to be a uh, more affordability for home ownership as they kind of move into the third and uh, fourth quarter of, ne- of this year into next year. Absolutely. So <clears throat> Daniel, as always, thanks for being on the show. Appreciate it. Uh, always love the uh, the opinions and the expertise and the, uh, the, uh, the, the conversation we have when it comes to this kind of stuff. So guys, if you like what you're hearing, please five-star review this podcast. Uh, if It's on every platform in which you listen it to. If you would, go to Apple, use a five-star review. Leave us some comments on our YouTube channel. We do respond to them. Not all of them, but probably about 90% of them. And uh, definitely enjoy the feedback you guys are putting on there. Till the next episode, we'll see you at What's Your One More. I got one more shot, I'm gonna make it One more chance, I'm gonna take it I meant it when I said it, now it's time for me to do it I got one life to live, so I put them all into it, yeah